Clyde Thompson was born in a good Christian home. His father was a Bible salesman and an itinerant gospel preacher. But Clyde never had much use for church growing up. And so as soon as he was old enough, he began to stay home from services by himself. Most of the time when the family went to worship, he'd go out hunting. And that's what he was doing one Sunday evening. He met a couple of friends of his, two brothers, ages 18 and 13. They borrowed a pistol and a shotgun from the brother's daddy without his knowing and they set off up the creek to go hunting. As it happened, they encountered two men who'd had some previous trouble with the older brother and their father. Words were exchanged. Things got more heated. The argument escalated into physical blows. And when those two men tried to grab a powder horn and a tree limb to use as weapons, Clyde pulled the pistol and he shot them both dead. Clyde was sentenced to death in the electric chair in 1931. He was only 19 years old. At the time, he was the youngest person to ever be placed on death row in Huntsville. Now, despite that religious upbringing, I mentioned he wasn't interested in it. Clyde had never obeyed the gospel. But there in his prison cell, he overheard... Brother P.D. Wilmeth preaching on the radio. Obviously, in 1931, you didn't have any televisions in prison. But prisoners didn't even typically have their own personal radios. A guard happened to be listening to it out in the corridor, and he listened intently. And so he sent for Brother Wilmeth to come down and baptize him. And he did that just six days before Clyde was scheduled to be executed. In the meantime, they held the trial for his adult accomplice, that older brother in that cellar. That young man came from money, which meant he was able to hire a good lawyer. And the sad reality of our judicial system meant that where Clyde was sentenced to death, that good lawyer was able to get him off with a five-year suspended sentence. Now, when the case came before the governor, the governor couldn't see the justice in sentencing one man to die for a crime that three people were really guilty of to the same extent. And so Clyde's sentence was commuted. Not to five years, but to life in prison. Now, unfortunately, during that delicate time, not a single Christian, despite his conversion, ever came by to see him, ever came by to encourage him in any way. They sent him to a place called Retrieve Farm near Angleton on the Gulf Coast, a place that was so miserable that the inmates commonly referred to it as burning hell. They worked dawn till dusk every day they didn't have enough to eat they didn't even have enough time to wash their clothes 
They come in exhausted every day at the end of all of that work out in the field and Clyde would collapse down on the bed, exhausted, filthy, just to get up and do it all over again the next day. And there in that place, Clyde lost what little faith he had. He couldn't understand how God and a place like that could simultaneously coexist. His daddy came down to see him and he gave him back the Bible that he'd given him while he was on death row. He told him that he didn't care about it anymore. He didn't believe in it. He wasn't going to try to live it. I can't imagine how that must have broken his father's heart probably contributed to his early death in 1938. He was only 53 years old. During this period, Clyde became a desperate man. He developed a reputation. His fellow inmates there in prison dubbed him, quote, the meanest man in Texas. He attempted to escape on four separate occasions. And even when he wasn't actually attempting escape, all of that time he was plotting and planning it. He wasn't thinking about anything else. He had resolved in his desperation that he was either going to escape or he was going to die trying. That was the only two ways this was going to end for him. So he had two knife fights with fellow inmates. In those knife fights, he killed the other men. As a result of those killings, another life sentence for each count was added on to the existing life sentence he was already served. Well, the prison officials realized that here is a man who's not afraid to die. And that makes you particularly dangerous in prison. And so they sent him to a place they called Little Alcatraz at Easton Farm. There he plotted with several other inmates. It was an intricate plan. They were going to seize the arsenal. They were going to hand out weapons to other inmates. And they were going to kill any guard or any other inmate who refused to cooperate. Anyone who stood in their way, they were going to wipe them out. Well, they managed to apprehend a couple of guards. They used them as human shields and they made their way slowly up to the armory. But when they got there, they found that somehow the guards had found out about their plan. It was an ambush. They were waiting for them. Clyde was shot through the shoulder. The other three men with him weren't so lucky. They were all killed on the spot. And at that point, the Texas prison system gave up on Clyde Thompson. There was an old, abandoned morgue behind Death Row there in Huntsville, a place that was made with concrete walls, and they retrofitted it with a solid steel door to house him and him alone because he was so dangerous. They kept him there in solitary confinement with no light except the little sliver that came through the barred hole on his door and that only came through for five hours a day because of the shadows that were cast by the nearby buildings. Otherwise he was in pitch darkness. 
There's no running water. There was no toilet. They didn't give him utensils to eat with because they were afraid that he might sharpen a spoon and use that as a weapon. They didn't give him any clothing other than a pair of shorts to wear because they were afraid he might fashion something to hang himself with otherwise. And with nothing else to do, Clyde walked end to end, back and forth in that small cell, counting the paces to the point that he wore down the concrete at each wall where he made the turn, and his bare feet became hard as rocks. Well, after several months in that situation, Clyde got the guard's attention and he asked them to bring him a Bible. He knew that they wouldn't get him anything else to read, but if he asked for a Bible, there was at least a chance they might get him that. And it wasn't so much that he was interested in the Bible, certainly not from any good intention, but he had to have something to do to keep from going insane in that solitary confinement. And they brought him the Bible, and he was determined here at last something to do. He was going to study through it, and he was going to find all the contradictions in it. He was determined to prove that it wasn't true. And so he sat down and studied the Scriptures more diligently than he ever had in his life. And there, at the lowest of low points that a person can possibly drop to, Clyde Thompson came to himself. He realized that the Bible was true and that he was the one who was false. Day and night, for months after that, he spent his time on his knees in tears, praying to God, asking for forgiveness. He read the scriptures every time the light allowed it. He prayed earnestly that he might be forgiven. He wondered if there was any way God could possibly forgive someone who'd done the terrible things that he'd done. He prayed if there was some way that God could take him and use him to glorify Him and accomplish His will. And the Lord, the loving Father that He is, gracious and merciful that He is, did just that. They took Him out once a week to shave Him and to bathe Him, and when they did that, they started letting Him pass out literature to the prisoners He passed along the way. Pretty soon he had three fellows wanting to obey the gospel. He sent for a preacher to come down from Dallas and to baptize him. And there, an old deep bathtub in the corridor on death row, just a few feet away from where Clyde once waited for his execution, those three men were baptized into Christ. And those were only the beginning. He continued to study the scriptures. Before long, they put a little light in his cell so that he could have more time to study. And they allowed him to have more reading material so he was able to expand his knowledge beyond just the Bible to get some help. They put running water in there. In other words, they were fixing the place up for him to stay. But Clyde Thompson, the man who had once resolved to get out or to die trying, no longer cared about his freedom. 
He was determined to do whatever he could do there in that place. He wanted to bloom where he'd been planted. He was going to serve the Lord as best he could from that prison. He let go of all of that hatred that he'd once harbored toward, toward his fellow man. In 1946, a young woman named Julia sent him a Christmas card. She'd heard his story from their preacher in the church. He'd told the congregation about Clyde, and he'd asked all of them if they'd be willing to send him notes to encourage him there in that place. She was the only one who ever bothered to do it. But they struck up correspondence. He started writing her back. And one year later, at the following Christmas, they met face to face for the first time. Clyde proposed marriage. She accepted. And from then on, she became his greatest advocate. First of all, that he might be released from solitary confinement and then that he might be released from prison. Finally, on November 1st, 1955, after more than 28 years in prison, Clyde Thompson, once the meanest man in Texas, walked out those gates on a conditional pardon. Julia was waiting there with a suit of clothes, a borrowed shirt, and a necktie. And they were married five days later. For the early years of their marriage, the Thompsons traveled a while trying to find a place where they could serve Christ as best they could. Clyde engaged in local work as a preacher in congregations for a while. He also went and served for a spell as the superintendent of a Navajo children's home in New Mexico and while they were there he and his wife adopted a Native American girl. But finally in 1970 he returned to Huntsville where he established his prisoner's aid center. And over the next few years he taught and baptized more than 1,500 prisoners between 1970 and 77. Then he moved to Lubbock, where he worked with the Sunset Church of Christ as prison minister and converted another 400 souls before he finally was called home to be with his Lord on July 3rd, 1979. That's a true story. Every word of it. The parable that Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 15, so far as we know, was a fictitious story. But the story of Clyde Thompson is the story of the prodigal son. There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his field to feed pigs. 
And as he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back, safe and sound. But he was angry, and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead, and is alive, is lost, and is found. Most of us have probably heard that one of the primary rules of parable interpretation is that there's only one point to be made from a parable. You don't want to read too many points into all of this imagery because then you risk missing the main message. But really, in these more complex parables with more than one character, what we find is that there's a point to be made for each one of the characters, if there's two, or if in this case. There's three. This story teaches us three lessons through the eyes of each of the main characters. I want us to consider those briefly in our remaining time this morning. The first one is that repentance is always possible for those who want to return to God. That's the message that's taught to us through the eyes of the prodigal son. And the prodigal is the character that we naturally focus on the most. This is the most famous of all of Jesus' parables, and we know that it's entitled the prodigal son. In the context of Luke chapter 15, you see what occasioned this parable. Back in verse number 1, the prodigal responds to those publicans, those tax collectors and sinners Jesus was eating with. The tax collectors and sinners. We're all drawing near to hear him, it says. Tax collectors and sinners, these were outcasts, pariahs, on the margins of society. Everyone looked down on That's who this son represents. 
And in this son, we have a dramatic picture of ungodly living in Jesus' day. Family was the ultimate commitment for a young Jewish boy. And so when this young man comes and he says to his father, I want you to give me my inheritance, that's the same thing as saying to him, I wish you were dead. He's turning his back on everything that's most important to a Jewish family. And he goes off then into a far country. A far country for a Jewish boy, that's a Gentile country. That's an unclean place where he ought not to be. And then he finds that he wasted all his money, and so he has to lower himself to hire himself out to a Gentile. But still he drops lower. The ultimate degradation, he ends up having to take care of the pigs. You know that pigs were unclean animals for Jews. This is as low as a Jewish boy can get. And he's so hungry that that hog slop starts to look appetizing to it. And in his desperation, he came to himself, just like Clyde Thompson there at his low point. And he realized that his only hope was to return home. But any normal Jewish father by this point would have ceremonially disowned his son. There wouldn't be any sort of legal relationship between them anymore. So he would go and entreat him, plead with him, not to take him back as a son, but to hire him on as a servant, literally as a slave. Maybe he could beg him to take him in like that, and at least then he wouldn't starve to death. Throughout human history, there have been prodigals like this boy, like Clyde Thompson. Maybe you've had one in your own family, though probably not to the extent of, of being a multi-time murderer. Maybe you've been that prodigal yourself. But the good news of this parable, the good news of the gospel is, no matter how far you've wandered in that far country, no matter what your sin is, forgiveness is always possible. Thompson himself wrote this. Sometimes we want to limit the power of the blood of Christ. And we say, oh, well, you can be forgiven of this sin or that sin or some other sin, but the Lord just can't forgive this one. Beloved, if he can forgive one sin, he can forgive them all. And if the blood of Christ is sufficient for one sin, it's sufficient for all sins. I didn't realize this at first. The only unforgivable sin is the sin of unbelief. The one that doesn't trust in the Lord and doesn't repent and turn to Him to receive that grace of forgiveness. You can never wander so far away that forgiveness is impossible. The story of the prodigal, the lesson he teaches, is the most familiar one to us. And I imagine to an audience like this one this morning, most if not all of whom are already Christians, we probably don't need to stress that point so much. But there's a second son in this parable. And there's a second lesson for us to learn from him. And that is, we mustn't begrudge forgiveness even to the greatest, the most vile sinners. 
You see, if all Jesus wanted to do was to teach that you can be forgiven no matter what you sin of, he could have stopped the parable in verse number 24. He didn't need to go on and mention that an older brother exists at all. But there's a second son here. And there's a second point that he makes. Instead of rejoicing like his father does that his younger brother is at home, he's angry. He refuses even to go in to the party. He complains that he's never done anything like this for him. And what he says here, uh, literally down there in verse number 29, look. These many years I've served you, literally, these many years I've slaved for you. All of these years he's been living in the Father's house. They've been working side by side, shoulder to shoulder. And he views that as slavery. I can't imagine how that must have hurt his father. And he says, all that time you never did anything like this for me. And then he distances himself not only from the father, but from his younger brother too. He says, but as soon as this, your son, you won't even call him his brother. You know, that story of Clyde Thompson contains some elder brothers too. What about after his baptism? All of those Christians who never visited him, who never encouraged him. Do you think if anyone had come by, do you think if they'd had a prison ministry or if they'd tried to hold services there, that they'd have made a difference? They might think not. Thompson was never one to make excuses for himself in later life. He was open and honest about all those failings. But he said this, Not one Christian from the outside came in to encourage me in the way of the Lord. Had Christians come in and services been held in that institution, I am sure that the horrible things which happened afterward would not have happened, and I wouldn't have spent 25 more years in prison after I'd already been in for 30. What about all those Christians who neglected to write him letters? When the preacher told them his story and he appealed to them, write and encourage this man, and only one woman did. She ended up becoming his wife. Not only that, she became that instrument for his deliverance and advocating on his behalf. But what if others had taken up his cause? Maybe he could have been out sooner. How much would that have bolstered him in those difficult years? The older brother in his story corresponds to the Pharisees back at the beginning of the context. Jesus is eating with the tax collectors and with the sinners and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled about it. This man receives sinners and he eats with them. They're complaining about Jesus' table fellowship with these people that he would dare to condescend with, to mix with the dregs of society. How much of that attitude remains in those of us who are Christians? Do we look down our noses on people who've been in sin and they come to make changes in their lives? Do we doubt their sincerity? We can't trust him. We know all about his past. Do we not want those sorts of people mixing in our congregation because they might lower our level of respectability in the eyes of the community? For many people, this ought to be called the parable of the elder brother. So we've entitled our sermon this morning, if you noticed, on the worship choir, the loving Father. 
That's what this parable really ought to be called. Because the most important character in this story isn't either son. It's the father. And he teaches us a third lesson. And that is that God is lavish in his love and in his forgiveness. He forgives the sins of both sons. He wants us to do likewise. It's not hard for us to think about parallels to each of these two boys. You can probably think right now of some people in your own life that have corresponded to one or the other of these two men. Jesus, I imagine, could think of real-life parallels in his experience. He's over 30 years old. He knew a lot of people. Maybe he was drawing on something that even really happened here. And we saw parallels to both of these two sons in the story of Clyde Thompson. But there is no earthly parallel for the father in this story. No human father, however great his love for his children, compares to the love that the Heavenly Father has for us. He never stopped watching for that boy. And we know that because one day, months, years later, who knows how long, he sees him in the distance down the road. And rather than waiting for him to make his way there, he runs out to greet him. By the way, Jewish men didn't run. This is an important elder in the community. He's disgracing himself here. He's violating social norms. You don't run. That's undignified. He doesn't care. He runs out to greet his boy. And that boy starts that carefully rehearsed speech, Father, I've sinned against heaven, against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He cuts him off. He doesn't let him finish. Put new clothes on him. Put new shoes on him and a ring on his finger. Kill the fattened calf. We're going to celebrate. That father has never disowned that boy. To the contrary, he gives him the greatest welcome imaginable. But have you ever noticed that he's not any less caring with that older brother? In that selfish, unforgiving attitude that he demonstrates, that older brother deserves to be rebuked. And yet the father pleads with him. He begs him to come in. Son, you've always been here. Everything that I have is yours. So we ought to be celebrating. He uses the same words that he did in receiving the younger boy. Your brother was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. I consider myself very fortunate to have had a great father. And I hope, I hope that you did too. I know unfortunately that not everyone in this world is so lucky. Clyde Thompson had a good father by his own admission. But no father can equal the love and the grace and the mercy of God that he extends towards all of us, his children. This parable is familiar to all of us. And it remains deliberately and enticingly open-ended. We don't know what happens after this. We don't know how that old boy responded. We don't know if he ever went into the party. 
We don't know if that younger son remained penitent or if he went out after he was received back and went to the far country again at some point. But in the end, neither of those points matter. What matters is what we said about the Father and how we choose to respond. Because we're oftentimes in the position of one of those two sons. Are there areas in which we need to repent? Are we afraid that we've done something so terrible that God could never possibly welcome us back? We could never be forgiven for the things that we've done. Know that He longs for us. He wants fellowship with us. And He not only is eager to forgive you, He'll run out to meet you and welcome you home. Are there those whose conversions we begrudge? People whose sincerity we doubt? Do people come into our assembly and we say, well, don't you know about Him? (laughs) He has a reputation. Don't you know about the things He's done? God's calling us to give people like that a lavish welcome, to break down the barriers and to accept them just as He accepts them. Ultimately, as Christians, we're called to emulate Christ. He defended His behavior in eating with those tax collectors and sinners by telling this story. He reflected the love of the Father, forgiving both the overtly rebellious prodigal but also that subtly sinful behavior of the older brother. May we learn and take to heart the lessons that emerge from each of the three characters in this story. And most important, if today you stand in the position of that prodigal son wandering in the far country, or if today you're like that older brother who looks down your nose at those you think you're better than. You stand in need of forgiveness. But the Father has already prepared the feast. He's inviting you to come home. He'll run out to meet you. If you need to make changes today, once you come home, Father stands, Mother stands.